The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead and who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest for them their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has his authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes' harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Let's try one more time. I have a church that talks to me, so you guys are going to have to step it up just a little bit, okay? Good morning. There you are. Sam gave me a really easy text to preach this morning. Thank you so much, Sam. 
I love you for that. Uh, it, is a, it is a great honor to be here. Um, our, my family, my in-law family was raised up uh, in this church building, and so it's a beautiful thing to, to get to come, and I've been in many church gatherings here before it was Sacred City, and so that's really pretty. I, got, uh, I was married here in this church as well. I almost caught my sleeve on fire right up here somewhere. Um, suits were a little baggier 10 years ago, and so um, my style's changed a bit, you know, because of that, and so... Um, it, it's just an honor to, to come and to be in, to be a part of Sacred City Church from a distance is a, a beautiful bl- uh, blessing. And um, Justin Dean and the other elders and staff and Sam and um, helped us. They were highly influential to us as we planted Heights Church um, in the St. Louis area. It's, it's basically the same church. It's just called Heights Church instead of Sacred City. And uh, so where they supported us even financially for two years, um, once we rolled off of support from them, we were in a, a really great position financially to support Sam and Sacred City here financially. And so it's just a cool picture of church planting and the church getting to be uh, the church. And so there's a, I'll share all that because there's a lot of connections that I have, uh, both with Sacred City Current as well as the church building here and family that are here. And so it's awesome. Uh, I'm excited uh, to be here. Um, um, uh, it took me a little while to get excited about Revelation 14, if I'm being honest. Uh, I think that today is probably payback for me uh, for all the hard text I've given to other pastors to come to Heights Church uh, to preach for me. And so this is by far, I would say, the most difficult passage I've ever had to preach uh, as a guest speaker. Um, I had to preach on divorce two weeks ago. I had to preach on circumcision a few months ago. I got invited once to preach on what it meant to be a Proverbs 31 woman somewhere. And that was easier than what this is right here, okay? And so um, Revelation is a, a tough and interesting uh, book. I went to uh, Covenant Seminary. It's where I got my master's in theology. And um, one of my classmates, her father was a, a professor of eschatology, a professor of end times. And he spent 40 years studying the book of Revelation. And whenever it came to his um, that's kind of his final ceremony, ceremony, his retirement ceremony. He stood there before like all the men and the women and his family, friends, his uh, staff, and, and he gets up and he gives kind of his final speech and then he says, all right, so the moment you've been waiting for, what is going to happen in the end times? And he says, after 40 years of study, I can stand here and confidently tell you, I have no idea. <laughs> so... Obviously, he had some idea. That man studied four, uh, 40 years. I studied about five days. And so um, we'll see how today goes. Let me pray one more time for me, for us, uh, and then we'll dive into this thing. Does this sound good? That's your key to say that sounds good, okay? Yeah, there it is. We'll, we'll learn together today. It'll be good. Father, thank you so much uh, for really just the redeeming work here. I mean, it's a really beautiful picture of Um, the church, just being the church here and acquiring um, a building as a resource uh, to live on mission and uh, to see another church leave a legacy. Um, There's there's so many other things that the previous church could have done and to their name and to their fame. And and I think in humility and obedience, God, they honored you and uh, they shared their their space in a really unique way uh, with Sacred City. And and many of that church body stayed. And and my gosh, the humility that it it would take to do that, God, the love and, and the grace that that they show to Sacred City and vice versa is just uh, from an outsider's perspective is really beautiful. And so, God, if anyone in the room has missed uh, the redeeming work that's happened here the last year, God, convict them and challenge them and and lead them to just a heart of celebration because it's really beautiful. And so, God, for today, I pray, as always, as I pray every week, that you would 
uh, settle my anxieties, God, that you would um, steal my heart. God, that you would help me to think, uh, be precise. You would help me to be clear. God, you would remove me from this thing. Uh, help me to not get in your way. Um, God, I, I pray that you help me to, to press um, hard and deep where necessary, God. Help me to back them into a corner as deeply as you need them pressed in. Um, help me to draw back uh, where necessary as well. I pray, God, the same thing for the family that is here today. Um, God, I pray that, that their hearts might be open to hear the gospel. Some of them, maybe for the first time, and they've been in church for 20 years. Uh, maybe them for the first time, and they just walked in for the first time. And so, God, I, I pray that, that our hearts, all of us, that we might receive something good from you. As we read about the king who wears the golden crown, God, help our belief, actually, to believe in him. Um, I, God, I pray as I pray every week that as a family we might lose track of time today, that we might not worry so much about where we're going to eat lunch or what's next on the agenda, but we might sit and just kind of settle in uh, for just a minute and, and actually come before you with some awe, uh, with some reverence. Um, as we open God's word, help us to be attentive to the spirit and to what you have to say. All God's people said, amen and amen. All right, so we're rolling through the book of Revelation. And uh, Revelation, as many of you know, if you're seasoned in Sacred City, you know this. If you're a guest, this will be a little bit more for you. Uh, Revelation is really meant to, to be read straight through um, as an encouragement and as a challenge, uh, as a calling to the early church. And so whenever we take Revelation in bits and pieces, while that's good to do, um, if you miss a week or if you miss a couple weeks or if you've never even experienced the book of Revelation, to only experience a piece of that book can kind of sound a little bit like a, like a sci-fi film or something out of Dr. Seuss, um, but it's not. I mean, it is the word of God, and it's meant to be taken in, in big chunks. And so what we see in Revelation is just that, is that God has revealed some pretty clear things uh, to the church and to some things in the church. He's kind of kept them hidden, but it's still up to us then as the church to, to kind of sit and to meditate on and to con to contemplate uh, some of the heavier things that exist within the Bible. And I think Revelation might be uh, one of the heaviest. And so as you come to this book, there should be kind of a level of like, as I prayed, even like awe and reverence that comes over you. There should be a little bit of like, when you read Revelation, you should feel just a little bit smaller whenever you're reading the book. You should feel a little bit more out of control whenever you read the book. It should raise up a, a multitude of questions. If you don't have any questions going through this book, you've not been listening to the sermons, right? And so it should, like, it should press against you and kind of pull at you. It should stir your affections. It should challenge you. I mean, it should do all of these different things. I experienced them all <laughs> this week. And the reality is, as we get into this text today, as this is a letter written to the saints, let me be clear, a letter written to Christians, not to the outsider, not to the world, but to the church, is a letter for us from our Savior. The reality of this text today is you're either going to sing the song of the Savior or you're gonna experience the sickle of the Savior. And that's the two places that he puts us in. There's not really any way to shake or navigate or move our way out of this box that he puts us in. So the big idea, I give a big idea to our church every week, just kind of one tweetable sentence, is this. The Savior's song is far more pleasant than the Savior's sickle. If you're a note taker, the Savior's song is far more pleasant 
than the Savior's sickle. And so the text is a bit of a discouraging uh, encouragement, if I may. There's three things that exist in the text that we're gonna look at. The first thing, again, if you like to take notes, this will be kind of for you. If you're type A, you know, real controlling, this is for you too. And so the first thing we're gonna see is the eternal gospel. What is the gospel? The second thing we're gonna look at is the warning. So we have the gospel, then we have the warning from John, and then the third thing we're gonna see is the final judgment. So we have the gospel, the warning, and the judgment. Sound good? You guys are really terrible at this. So. All right, here we go. Revelation chapter 14, verse one. Then I looked, and behold, every time the scriptures say behold, it's kind of like the startling moment. And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Verse two, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. Also, the voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song, just as we sing, church, before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And so John is kind of inviting us into some contrasting imagery. If you've been throughout this series, if you've read the book of Revelation, he likes to kind of bring up contrasting imagery between the beast um, and between Jesus, and he kind of likes to lay out how the beast mockingly tries to act like and imitate who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. If you are here last week, this is a, a direct contrast, really, to what you would have seen last week. And so John is kind of inviting us behind the curtain, if I may. We're kind of backstage, VIP, and we get a picture of this cosmic battle that is taking place in the end times. And so John has invited us out of the physical and kind of introduced us to this supernatural, cosmic, spiritual, very real battle that is happening that we rarely ever think about, unless your church is crazy enough to take you through the book of Revelation. Right? Outside of that, we don't really think about the things that are happening here. And so we see this 144,000, that's a number of completion, whereas last week the number 666 was a number of incompletion. And so John said there's the complete, the total church, 144,000. That's not a, um, an exact number, it's just a representation of the church as a whole. And he's saying that there's this victorious battle cry. You see, Jesus has already won this thing, right? Spoiler alert, right? He's already won it. There's this victorious battle cry that they have, and they're singing this new song, this number of completion. And on one hand, it is powerful, and it is mighty. And on the other hand, it is like beautiful and melodic. And what's interesting is I've actually experienced some of the, that, not you know, in the spiritual, but uh, there's this really great conference that, that we go to sometimes, and Sam, Pastor Sam's probably been to, some of you might have been to, called Together for the Gospel. Maybe you've been to that. And this is a conference where roughly 10,000 men come together. And all they have is 10,000 men and this phenomenal worship leader named Bob Coughlin and a grand piano, and that's it. And so you get a grand piano and 10,000 men just singing hymns, the same hymns that we sung today. And let me tell you, as only 10,000 of these men would sing these hymns together, they would sing so loud and their voices would be so booming that you could no longer hear Bob Coughlin and his grand piano. And the stadium in Louisville would just shake. Like you could literally hear the vibrations of the stadium with only 10,000 men. 
right, singing the same victorious battle cries of these 144,000. And so whenever he says, man, here's this, this complete, this picture of the church, this 144,000, on one hand, they are singing this victorious battle cry. It is booming. It is thunderous. It's like roaring waters. And at the same time, it is melodic and it is beautiful. That is kind of what is happening here in the text. And then we continue verse four. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Again, this is imagery. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an, what's that say? Eternal gospel to proclaim. Right? Not a gospel just for right now. Not a gospel for whenever you came to faith. Not a good gospel for whenever you feel really emotional and really connected to Jesus, but an eternal gospel that is everlasting, right? I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Is it limited to Americans? Limited to Anglos? No, what does it say? To every nation, to every tribe, to every language, and to every people, this gospel that this angel proclaimed was sufficient. It's interesting when you look at this text, right? Those who have not turned to sexual immorality, those who are virgins, those who follow Jesus, quote, wherever he goes. No lie found in their mouth, for they are blameless. Can I just level with you, church? Like, if this is the rubric to get to heaven, I probably dropped or bombed three of five of those this morning. You know what I'm saying? Anybody else? So there's gotta be something else going on here in the text. Are you with me? Right? What's so surprising to me is how so many different men will come and they will preach this text on Revelation, man, and you'll get some sweaty dude in a sport coat up here, and he'll be like, if you wanna go up when he comes down, you better get right or get left, right? And what he's saying is like, you need to get your stuff together. You need to figure yourself out. You need to work really hard to be like these people. You need to stop lying. You need to stop sexual immorality. And they'll come with this. And while those things are absolutely true, that is not at all what the text is saying of us today, right? And so it's, it's, it's not just true of us that we bomb these, this little rubric here in the text, but I want you to think about it with me. All of the patriarchs who come before me, if this is the rubric to get into the kingdom of heaven, are not standing among the 144,000. Like you have Moses in chapter nine who gets drunk and caught with his pants down. Blameless? Come on. King David, who is an adulterer, sleeps with dude's wife, then has dude killed as a murderer. You think, it, according to this rubric, is King David, who the promises are founded upon, standing among the 144,000? Absolutely not. You have Abraham, who our kids will sing about, gave his wife up for prostitution, not once, but because he's so sharp, he did it twice. Is he standing among the 144,000? If this is the rubric, for getting into the kingdom of God. Do you see what I'm saying here? There's gotta be something more. And it's very rare that we get the great privilege and the opportunity to begin a sermon with the gospel. But today we get to. Usually we land the plane with that gospel, and we will today. And so I asked the team to put together 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 for me so that we can understand how this 144,000 could ever be standing righteous and how it has any hope for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We could just stop there. 
right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Not from us, not from our labor, not because our good work, not because you showed up today on a Sunday. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, that has brought us back into relationship, reconciled us to himself, and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is why we do missional community. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's every tribe, every nation, every language, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them. And then trusting to us, again, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here Paul is begging the church, right? We implore you, we beg you. John's going to do this in a moment. We implore you, be in relationship with Christ. Believe the gospel. He's sharing the same gospel that the angel was sharing as he's flying overhead. And then here we see how all this righteousness is possible. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Do you ever get tired of hearing it? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. John is giving us a picture here of the gospel This 144,000 that is standing there are not standing there because they were perfect in human history. They're not standing there because they had all their ducks in a row or because they never lied or because they were absolutely virgins or because they were completely blameless in their works. They're not standing there because their prayer life superseded every other Christian's prayer life or because they were some missionary that was some super missionary that went overseas to share the gospel. Like the 144,000 are standing there because Jesus Christ gave him their righteousness. He said, my work is for you. I will work in your place. I'll stand in your place as your substitute. I'm gonna be the substitutionary atonement for you and I'm gonna give you everything that's perfect in me regardless of your behavior. Like That's the scandal of the gospel that so many people miss. And so there's this already not yet tension, right, where we are saved and yet we are being saved and one day we will be forever saved. And John is pointing to this reality to us in this future where we get to come together as the saints, as the church who've received the righteousness of God by nothing that we have done and nothing that we could ever do to earn it. So it's beautiful, right? If you profess faith in Jesus' work and you follow Jesus' work, right, there's some action in there. We actually begin to look more like him John says, this is that complete picture. This is a picture of the 144,000. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? No one else offers that sort of gospel. Do you know that? Like when you think about Buddhism, they just say that humanity is messed up, you're kind of a mess, here's a few different ways you can change your behavior and be saved. You think about Islam, it's the same thing. Humanity is a mess, there's a God who you can serve, and if you serve that God and you serve him perfectly, one day he will save you, but if, but if you don't serve him that way, he's going to end you. You think about Hinduism, it's the exact same thing. Humanity is a mess, but if you wanna reach enlightenment and you wanna feel a certain way, then you just need to do all of these different things. Listen, Christianity is the only religion, the only school of thought the only one where there is a God who is a king that enters into battle for those whom he's willing to save. Like there's not, we don't serve a king who sends the soldiers into battle to fight for us, but rather we serve a king who enters into the battle and gets his hands messy for us. 
so that we never have to enter into that battle, so that we get to stand in victory among the 144,000, knowing that we were a complete mess while here on, here on earth, and yet we were seen in great victory in the kingdom of God. Like, that is the gospel that we've been invited into. Verse seven, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Right, so we kind of have this picture, there's the 144,000, there's these angels kind of flying, and what they're doing here is they're kind of, if I, if I may, they're kind of like hyping up the church for this battle. Like it's a very real battle that's taking place, and so if you want, you know, paint a picture, like remember Braveheart and Mel Gibson is kind of riding around in a kilt, he's kind of charging up everyone, and then they're all like, rah, and they scream, and they turn around and they moon the opposing force. In my mind, like that's totally what's happening here in the text, right? <laughs> if you don't, you know, you just need to study more, you'll, you'll get there, and um, but it's kind of this moment, right, where like the angel is kind of hype, he's like the hype man behind the scenes. He's getting everyone excited about this big battle that is about to go down. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's pointing people to him. And then he says, behold, you have to do a little Old Testament work here, but he says, behold, right, Babylon has fallen. We no longer have to drink of her sexual immorality. And what he's doing is he's um, quoting from, he's kind of reading from, um, reciting from the Old Testament in Jeremiah 3. And there was a moment where in Jeremiah 3, we read that the people of God in Israel became so sinful, like so disgusting and so foul that God looked at his bride Israel and he said, you have continued to give yourselves over, pardon my language, as whores to other gods. You've continued to pursue sexual immorality with other gods. And so the father looks at his bride Israel and he says, I can't even fathom being in your presence anymore. And he gives her a writ of divorce and he sends her away. And he sends her into 70 years of Babylonian exile to show his bride Israel what it was like or what it would be like to live outside of his presence, to live outside and from underneath the promises of God. And so he's saying here, right, the Babylon, Babylonian exile is over. Babylon has fallen. We no longer have to drink the wine of that sexual immorality. God the Father no longer sees us as adulterers, but rather, through Christ Jesus, sees us as spotless, sees us as his bride, sees us as perfect. And so this is all the imagery that, God, that John has given us through the book of Revelation. This is good news for us. I mean, we don't think about this a whole lot, but it's good news because there's, there's no one else in our lives, look at me, no one else in your life that you could continue to rebel against over and over and over and over and over again, and he would look at you and say, I see you as spotless. Like, there's no other God in history that would look down the aisle at a wedding ceremony taking place, no Sure, just know good and well that as he's looking down the aisle at his bride that she's going to commit adultery against him, that she's going to cheat on him, that she's going to rebel against him, that she's going to pursue sexual relations with someone else. There's no one else in history, no other God in history that stands at the end of that aisle and looks down here at the bride who he knows is going to commit adultery and says, I do. I'll clean her up. I'll make her beautiful. Where she fails, I will stand in her place. Where she commits adultery, I will be completely and utterly faithful no matter how she responds to me. No one else offers that. 
That's what John is mentioning. That's what he's revealing to us here in the 144,000. He presents us a certain way. We do not present ourselves that way. That's the first bit. The second bit then is the warning. Should we choose not to believe this? Verse nine. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Thank you, Sam. Just some really gentle imagery here for me. It's nice at my church because I have like these really bright spotlights where I can't see you guys, but in here I can just see all of your faces. And so this makes it even easier. So John, again, reminding the church of the effects of following the beast. John making this reference to last week, to the previous chapter where he says there's those who have the mark of the beast on them. All he's saying is that, is that there are those who are going to follow the world. And so again, John is talking to the church and he's saying, hey, you've been given the privilege, the opportunity to profess faith in this God, that he's gonna do everything for you. And then he gets really real with the church, which then forces me to have to do the same thing. And he says, but there are many of you who sit in the room who will not actually believe this. I think John knows good and well what, what we all know, that there's really three different people that exist in this room and in every church and every congregation around the world globally. There are some who will just straight up reject the gospel. Right? Your wife drug you here. You thought you were going to Denny's and voila, you appeared here. Psych. There's some who will reject the gospel. There are some who will put on a religious face and then they will reject the gospel. Uh, Tim Keller would say that is the most scary place to live. He said the only, thing more, only place more scarier to be than being an atheist is to be a Christian who believes dimly. And so there are some who will put on a religious face and they will reject everything that they hear today and maybe for the rest of their lives. And then there are some who will believe, man, and they will sing among the 144,000. So John is pulling out these contrasting views of the beast and Jesus, and, and, and he continues to do that, and let me just sum it up with you like this. I think that the other contrasting thing that we see in the text is this beautiful picture of this 144,000 who've been made righteous, who've been made perfect, and I think the contrast is that there is this church that exists in eternity that some of us will get to be a part of, and there is a, there is a church that exists right now, and, and regardless of where you are, this 144,000, they are everyone that we pretend to be. You get what I'm saying? Like they're standing in righteousness, they're standing in perfection, they're standing, in no, they can be no closer to relationship with Jesus than they are in this moment. And listen, they are everything that I pretend to be. They're everything that we pretend to be. And in our unbelief, right, we don't believe that God truly makes us righteous. We don't actually believe that to be good news. Uh, we don't actually believe that God sees us as perfect, so then we have to take extra measures to try to find perfection uh, we don't believe that God makes us righteous, so then I have to make myself righteous. I have to read more and pray more and do more and be involved in a greater way, but the motivation is not so I can get more of Jesus and how he sees me, it's just so I can present myself a certain way with some facade for others. Am I lying? Think about Facebook posts. Whoever puts anything really real out on Facebook? Think about your Instagram. What does your story have to say? Does it ever really tell of when you're arguing with a spouse or when you had a terrible day parenting? Does it tell that on the way here you wanted to murder everyone in the minivan? It doesn't, right? There's this facade that we put out because that 144,000, they are everything that we pretend to be. 
as a church. So John is begging the church and he's begging us by extension. He says, do not drink the cup that the world offers. Don't drink the cup that the world offers. You're never gonna find satisfaction in this place, in this world. You're never gonna find completion. The, The yearning that you have in you for more, the desire that you have for more, the desire that you have to be seen as perfect and put together and organized and orderly is only found in Jesus is what John's saying. He said, you continue to look at the world and it's never going to satisfy. And we do it all the time. I'm upset. Let's go to Target. Shop. Let's go shop. I'm feeling, I don't feel pretty. Let's put on more makeup. Let's start a diet. Maybe that'll help me out. Maybe we should start doing CrossFit. There's no level of CrossFit that's going to make you perfect. There's no level of yoga that's ever going to fix that what you need inside of you. No form of yoga. Not hot yoga, not booty yoga, not yoga, like no yoga, really? It's not gonna work. Temporally, it will work. Your heart is so religious. My heart is so religious, and we're so quick to turn to drink from the world. And John is imploring, he's begging the church, don't do that. He says, it's not, it's gonna, it's not going to work, right? Well, if that's not gonna work, then I'll just fake it till I make it. Listen, if you could've, you would've. You haven't made it. You're not going to make it, not on your own, not in your own strength, right? And here's the damage that happens to that. What happens whenever we continue to drink the cup of the world and act like everything is perfect, we begin to put this barrier up around us. I say us because I fall in this category with you. I have a huge idol of reputation I confessed to my church two weeks ago. You can listen to the podcast. What happens whenever we drink the cup of the world and we present ourselves as if we're perfect man, we create this barrier around us. And it's not like the vinyl on the side of a house that can be removed and you can expose some things, but rather this barrier becomes a bit of a fortress. This barrier becomes steel, cold bars around our heart. And what happens is I present myself and you present yourself in, certain, in a certain way to where you want people to perceive you a certain way. And what happens is your heart grows hardened and even harder, more and more hardened to the gospel. And not only does it, become, does it become hardened to this gospel, it becomes callous to this gospel, and then it becomes impenetrable to this gospel. And what happens is even scarier than is it when you look at God, because you, you begin to look at God and you begin to think, man, he can't be everything that he says he is because I've tried to fix myself and it doesn't work. And so then we look at God and we compare who God is to the way that we receive and perceive ourselves and act upon ourselves. And so really, well, God can't be good because I'm not good. God must not be able to work because my work isn't saving me. God must not be perfect because I'm not perfect. And everything in that is not gospel-centered at all. It's actually anti-gospel. It's bad news. And what happens is we're like, man, we just get hardened and hardened and hardened. And so what do we do? We put up a bigger and a bigger and a bigger and a bigger facade. And our hearts get even more hardened and more hardened and more hardened to the gospel to the point, and some of you know this, like you don't even know yourself. And so people come to you to to try to save and to try to help, to try to ask how they can serve, and you don't even know how to be vulnerable with them to say, this is what I need, because you don't even know yourself. And John is imploring, and he's saying, saying like, don't drink the cup of wrath before it's due. And look at me and tell me that in that lifestyle that we all experience, that doesn't feel a hell of a lot like hell. Look at me and tell me it doesn't feel like we're drinking God's wrath as we're setting in isolation, as we're setting alone, not being known, and not even knowing ourselves. 
This is what John is warning about. He's saying, man, it is lonely and it is tiring and it is heavy and it is isolating and it is hard and you don't have to experience that. He said, rather, there's a community around you, there's a Jesus around you who comes and he cleans you up, he makes you right. He's the only one that was perfect. You never have to be perfect. He was completely judged. You never have to judge yourself or anyone else. He's done everything sufficient in your place as your substitute. And then he continues, verse 11. He says, if you do this, not only are you gonna experience it now, but listen, here's the warning. I can't downplay this or make it funny. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And the reality is there's a lot of men and women who will sit in pews today and they're feeling the weight of this torment right now. The weight of that isolation. And it just feels like the smoke of that is just going up forever and ever. The torment lasts forever and forever and forever. And in this, what John is saying is that all of the bad, everything we see, everything we find foul, everything negative that we find in the tabloids, it's just going to get worse. That there's a moment coming, and hear the warning, where God's common grace, that is the, the grace that is for everyone, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, that's the grace that keeps the car from coming over and hitting you head on in the lane every single time you're driving. It's the grace that keeps the lights on in this place. It's the grace that keeps air in people's lungs. God said there's a day coming. John says there's a day coming where God's common grace will be no more, and everything that we fear Everything we fear for our families, everything we fear that we see in the tabloids will just simply be reality, but without God's grace. And it's going to last forever and forever and forever. And ultimately, what he's saying is there are some who will profess and sing, and there are some who will not. And God, believe it or not, in his mercy and in his grace, will just simply leave people to themselves outside of his grace. He will simply give them exactly what they want. And everything in me wants to say, how could you? Why would you? How is it that you could do this? But John says it's not the right response. John says, verse 12, here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith. And, faith. and he says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may what? rest from their labors. What a sweet and gentle call for us as Christians, that there's a day of actual rest coming for us, a day where we don't have the facade, a day where we don't have to fake it, a day where Facebook doesn't determine our highs and lows for the day. We may rest from our labors, for their deeds will follow them. John is begging the church Begging his brothers and sisters, he's saying, endure, keep the faith, be faithful, persevere, right? Don't trade the pleasures of the world for the torment for tomorrow. He's imploring them, he's begging them. Don't trade temporal rest right now for the eternal torment that's going to come later on. He's saying, stay focused, stay the course, persevere. Again, he's talking to these soldiers in this battle, mind you, right? And by extension, he's talking to us. John is begging the church. The text that came to mind as I was kind of journaling this week is that of Romans 9. And there's a writer by the name of Paul who wrote the book of Romans, he used to kill Christians. And he became a Christian. He thought he could save Judaism by killing Christians. And then he became a Christian, right? There's no one who comes to the cross asking for forgiveness who doesn't receive it. 
And so Paul, and he's writing about his brothers in Israel, and he says, uh, he says he's ripped and he's torn in the heart. And then he says something that I would never fathom saying. He said, oh, my, I have anguish in my heart. I wish for their sake that I might be accursed from Christ so that they may know him. And John is saying the same thing, right? He's begging the church. He's imploring. He's, he's, he's kind of inviting them into this reality that's going to happen, this reality that Paul saw as he looked down and he saw his brothers and sisters that will never turn, that will never believe. And he says something completely unfathomable to me. I would, I've never looked at anyone and said, oh my goodness, that I might be cut off from Christianity so that he or she might be in Christ eternally. Like that's a heart that I beg for this week, that I've never begged for before. A quote comes to mind from an old preacher, one of my favorite quotes from C.F. Spurgeon. It says, if sinners be damned, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Like, let that be our heart. You see the, the importance of missional community and taking the gospel out everywhere. So John is begging the people, as a man who's been cut off and put in isolation, mind you, he's saying, don't enter into this isolation. Don't go into this torment. There's, so, there's such a better way in and through Christ Jesus. So the response to the text for me shifted from who does God think he is to who in my neighborhood just needs to know this? Like, who in my workplace do I overlook every day and I fail to share the gospel with every single day of my life, and I'm a pastor? Which one of my kids do I need to be more intentional about sharing the gospel with daily? Does my heart beat like them, like Paul and like John? Do I, as I said in the meeting even earlier, like, like, have you ever just grabbed someone by the cheeks and said, do you believe in Jesus? Like, I've never done that. And yet this is exactly what these men are doing through the book of Revelation to us today. So John is saying this is going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take a little bit of suffering. You're going to have to let some things go. The way I would word it is no one gets to the kingdom without stepping over the cross. It's going to be tough to keep this endurance. And as if that imagery is not poor enough and chilling enough, there's even more. Verse 14, final judgment. Then I looked, and behold, I'm going to read all of it, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him, who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the, arv- for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud and swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's brittle for 1,600 stadia. It's just hard to read, isn't it? 
I mean, it's all, it is imagery. I don't believe it's physical blood that's going to flow. I think the, the righteous are gonna be separated, or unrighteous will be separated from the unrighteous. The unrighteous will be able to see and perceive Jesus Lord, but they will not be able to know him as Lord, which would be far more torment than a wine press. So in this final imagery of the chapter, uh, we, see the, we see this as a fulfillment of Matthew 13. And in short, we don't have time. I probably do have time. Your sacred city pastors preach for like two hours. But Matthew 13, 24, I'll just sum it up for you. Jesus tells his disciples this parable. And he says that there's a farmer who has spread seed, and then his workers come to him, and they say, did, did you not spread good seed, master? And Because there's weeds that have come up among the wheat. And the master looks at the farmers, and he says, no, I've done everything. There's an enemy who has come in the night. There's an enemy who's come in the night who has spread bad seed all throughout. As I thought about that this week, man, my thoughts kind of turned from who, what is God doing? Who is God to this reality that, that all of my anger and all of my frustration needs to be with this beast, with Satan, with the serpent who come in Genesis 3 that brought this war upon us? Like who, think about this. Who comes at night? Who sneaks in at night? A snake. Right, like a serp, like a weasel. Someone who's a coward comes at night, just as he did in the garden, just as he does in our lives regularly, right? And then the, the farmer tells them, he says, don't, don't worry about it right now. Like, just let, let the harvest grow up, and whenever the end comes, I'll have the workers come and separate the weed from the wheat. As I sat and thought about that just more and more and more, man, my anger just grew towards sin, the effects of sin. Satan and this beast that has come to cause this torment, to cause this torture, right? To, to even have John to write the words that the blood of the unrighteous will be that of four and a half feet deep and over 200 miles long. That's how long the river of blood will flow. And everything in me wants to point my anger and frustration at God. If I'm being completely transparent, why could he do this? Why did he have to do this? Isn't there a different way that he could have went about doing this? But we have to remember that the whole story and in the gospel that there's a fall of humanity that has come at the hands of a very real and scandalous and cowardice enemy who is Satan, who is the beast. And so the response is not who does God think he is. The response, I think, is that of John and Paul where we beg one another to profess faith in this Jesus and we beg God, what would it look like for me to be a curse so that my brothers and sisters might be able to receive you and profess faith in you and then to then turn and to actually hate sin instead of delighting in it. To actually believe that we've been set free from sin, that we stand among the 144 righteous and we get to sing a new song instead of continuing to find ourselves in isolation and so as I continue to think through this, I just thought, what is the response? Like, what response do you give a church as a guest speaker <laughs> on Revelation 14? And it's just that. It is to hate sin and to believe the gospel. And what I mean by that is that you see this picture of the 144,000. I said God, God kind of reveals that in John. But ultimately, that picture of 144,000 is a picture of Jesus. He's the one who makes them righteous. I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. Look, Jesus is the virgin only. He's the only one that was perfect. Jesus is the only one who never lied. He never put up a facade. He never faked it. He never acted like things were okay whenever they were not okay. Rather, he came in truth and he came in love. He's the only one that doesn't lie. Jesus is the only one that's truly blameless. He gives us his righteousness. We don't earn that. 
Jesus is the only one that's blameless, so there's no need then for us to ever cast blame. There's no need for us to feel judged by anyone else, for he was completely judged in our place. You see, this picture of God's wrath that we see here that includes the wine press and the blood and the unrighteous, this is nothing new. Everything that's happened here in Revelation 14 happened in the cross. The only difference is that me and my sinful heart as Corey, I come to this text and I think, who does God think he is? We're talking about this wine press and this blood and all this massacre that's going to happen. The difference between me and Jesus is that whenever Jesus was presented with the wine press, let's call it the cross, he willingly endured it for us. He never looked at the cross and said, who does God think he is to redeem these people? Who does God think he is to cast these people out? But rather, Hebrews says, it was the, the joy that was set before him, which was humanity led him to willingly enter into the wine press for us. And that's what we get to profess faith in, his work, not our own. And so Jesus enters into the wine press. Let me tell you, his blood flows, and it might not have been 200 miles wide and four and a half feet deep, but it was radically su sufficient to redeem us. It was enough blood to cover us. 2,000 years later, 15,000 years later, a million years later, he's the one that makes the 144,000 possible. And not only that, but the beauty of him fulfilling this text is he didn't do it in the city, right? He was outside of the city as someone who was deemed unrighteous. Jesus, <laughs> in the most real way, hangs as an adulterer under the curse of Babylon so that we might be seen as the perfect bride. Jesus fulfills every single bit of Revelation 14 before Revelation 14 was ever given. And for the first time ever, right, Jesus steps into this unrighteousness. He sacrifices, he steps away from his only sinner, which is his father, so that we might come to the father. Like, that's the gospel. That's the gospel application for the sermon. And so with that in mind, we can look at this text in Revelation 14 and say, man, we can hate sin, but we can love Jesus because we know that he loved us enough to die for us. And not only that, but then if that is true, then the rest of it is true as well. And so then there's a challenge in us to hate sin, to abstain from it as best we can, ultimately to know that we are deemed righteous even in the midst of our sin. Like, that's a scandal, church. And then people need to know that message because there's no other religion, no other philosophy, no, under, no other school of thought, no other form of theology where there is a king who's willing to die in battle so that we who think we're kings might actually receive royalty. Like, that's the beauty of the gospel. Let me pray for us and we'll take communion, have the pastors administer communion. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's really difficult, but it's true. And so, God, we thank you that Jesus is the fulfillment of the text, always and forever. We thank you even for the opportunity to, to be able to speak on Revelation, but to even begin a sermon with the gospel and end the sermon with the gospel is a treat. Uh, to be able to talk about the challenges. It, while it's uncomfortable, disheartening, uh, God, we know that this side of the cross, we can only stand in victory. Uh, I pray for God, those that are here. Uh, God, there's so many people that will come and they'll do all the right things, but they will never, ever actually profess faith in you. And so God, I pray today that as we have this text given to us in this real reality where there's a, there's a moment coming where you're gonna separate the weed from the weed and the unrighteous from the righteous, God, that if you do nothing else, maybe just give them the faith the size of a mustard seed. Let it just start somewhere where they think, maybe this is legit, maybe I do need to follow him, maybe he's onto something. I am in isolation, I am broken, I feel alienated, I don't have hope. 
I just keep turning to myself over and over again. God, help them to actually turn to you and trust you and walk in community with you and learn the depths of what it means to actually be a Christian and believe the gospel. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.